Our scripture reading for today comes from Matthew chapter 15, the first 28 verses. And the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother must end in death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then they're not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you've made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and he said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They're the blind, leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. And Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth, it goes into the stomach and it's eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil things, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands, this is not defile a man. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region, and she cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But Jesus answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But Jesus answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and he said, It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. So she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her and he said, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to explore this passage because when Jesus came preaching the kingdom, as we've been studying through uh, uh, Matthew's gospel, Jesus came with a very specific message of the kingdom, which is that he is the one who would be the deliverer. They expected Jesus to be, of course, a political deliverer, a political messiah. And he, of course, had come for a bigger purpose, which was to deliver not from Rome, but from death itself. Not to simply liberate the people of Israel, but the people of Israel and every other nation. And his kingdom plan and the message of Jesus was grander than anybody could have comprehended. And I want you to notice before we explore these narratives, because he comes with this majestic kingdom narrative, this majestic gospel narrative. 
And then there's some responses to that narrative. But before we deep dive, I just need us to zoom out and notice that the Pharisees are blind and this Canaanite woman has 20-20. This is what the author wants us to catch in this passage. So let's explore some narratives. Firstly, we're going to look at the religious response to Jesus' narrative. Secondly, the Canaanite woman's response to Jesus' narrative. And then lastly, um, our call to respond to Jesus' narrative. So firstly, this religious response. The religious response to Jesus' narrative is to reject him because he threatens the framework they've constructed for life. They have a pride-driven framework and Jesus doesn't fit into it. We can reject Jesus' narrative simply by having a framework for life that we have set up that Jesus doesn't fit into. We can do this in two ways. And I'm borrowing from uh, Dr. Tim Keller when I use these phrases. We can run away from Jesus by having a framework of rebellion. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think Jesus was just a historical figure. He was a nice guy. And the works that he did were inflated over time. And people worship him as divine, but he wasn't divine. I can create a framework that just rejects Jesus' narrative through rebellion, rebelling against God. Or I can create a framework, which is the religious leaders did, which is a religious framework of rejecting Jesus through rule-keeping. Both rebellion and rule-keeping are two ways to reject the grace of Jesus. The Pharisees had a a framework of rule-keeping whereby they felt that by all of their great rituals and obedience and commitment to traditions, they were essentially leveraging God to give them what they really wanted, which was power and prestige. So they've got this framework, and we can do the same thing. We can create frameworks to reject God. Uh, We can consider ourselves modern intellectuals, whereby believing in the resurrection from the dead is absurd. Who would ever believe such a thing? And have a a framework um, that that would suggest that I can only believe the things that I can empirically see with my senses. And I have to have airtight positivism. And there's nothing beyond the natural world I can sort of relate with that sort of a framework. Perhaps you're here this morning and uh, that's you. And you're like, yes, this is one of the challenges I have with Christianity. I, I, I really appreciate the love and the grace of this Jesus character, but I struggle with the phenomena of Christianity, namely the core of Christianity, which is the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to you, I would, I would just humbly suggest that you consider that there are a great many things in your secular worldview that you are taking on faith, if I could use that term. You're not operating consistently through life with an airtight positivism about absolutely everything that you do and believe and act. There are a great many things outside of the realm of science which Christians appreciate and, um, of course, value and esteem. And many of us in this room have made careers out of science. And so this isn't something that we check our brains at the door in order to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But rather, as we look deeply into the unmistakable, jaw-dropping precision of this universe in which we live, that in looking at that data, we humbly bend our intellectual knees and humble ourselves and say, there are a great deal of things outside of this natural world which we do not understand. And we humbly ascribe those things to the Creator God, the one who came in Jesus Christ in 33 AD under Pontius Pilate, was crucified on a Roman cross, three days later was risen, Seen by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And overnight, 
thousands of well-educated Greco-Romans with Platonic educations and philosophy abandoned their worldviews overnight and worshipped Jesus Christ as the Savior and as God overnight. Not over hundreds of years when a legend slowly grew. Overnight. A sociological phenomenon that historians just have to scratch their heads and raise their eyebrows at and give us all pause. So I just invite you to consider that uh, this morning, if that's you, and, and to consider that may we not create a framework that we just, well, Jesus can't fit into this. Last thing I'll say on this is that there are a great number of people who are highly intellectual, who appreciate the, the beauty and the intricacies of science, uh, who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, Collins uh, oversees, oversaw the uh, genome project when they were decoding human DNA. And Francis Collins is a believer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has a whole website dedicated called Biologos, which is himself and many other brilliant scientists who are looking at the exact same data of this natural world of ours and have concluded in looking at that data that the most reasonable explanation for the intricacies, he calls the human DNA the language of God, he ascribes it to the creator God of the universe. So I would just invite you to consider, if that's you this morning, that there's no need to somehow check our brains at the door to believe in the glory and the wonder of Jesus, uh, the divine God who has come in wonderful grace to restore uh, in the cravings of the human soul uh, something that we simply cannot satisfy ourselves. So the religious response is to create a framework Jesus doesn't fit into, whether it's a secular framework or a religious sort of rule-keeping legalistic earning framework. <clears throat> so they, they say, hey, your disciples aren't washing their hands and they've got this hang up with the hand washing. This is actually a massive deal. Uh, Matthew Poole is a New Testament scholar who quotes Rabbi uh, Jose Ben Halafta who's, who uh, speaks about hand washing in this way. He says, to eat with unwashed hands, that one sins as deeply as the one who lies with a prostitute. So like they had a massive, massive commitment to these these rituals and Jesus says you're actually um, with all of these traditions that you've elevated in such a way you're rejecting the actual laws of God in in very uh, clear ways and he does this by uh, pointing at a couple of things in the Old Testament he makes a couple of references where God calls them to honor their father and mother but they're re- they're rejecting their fathers and their mother there's a couple of uh, strong strongly worded things there that say that if you a curse your father and mother, you're to be put to death. And as moderns, we read that, we say, whoa, what does this mean? That wouldn't bode well for many of us. We, many of us wouldn't even be here today if there was capital punishment for dishonoring our parents. When you go back to Exodus and read it and lean on some great Hebrew scholarship, what you discover is that the tone of those laws were to deter, uh, number one, children rising up, murdering their parents to take their property. And then secondly, ushering death threats. That's what the cursing of the parents is. It's a death threat to the parents. So this was to organize the ancient world, which was, for all intents and purposes, brutal, where you could murder someone for their property, bury them in the sand, and nobody would find out about it for decades. So this is God uh, you know, honoring a brutal ancient uh, uh, existence. And he's saying, you know, God put these laws in place to honor parents, and you are dishonoring parents in gross and disgusting ways and you're obsessing over hand washing. And then he speaks about this other law whereby they would say, oh, I've dedicated my property and I've dedicated these things to the Lord. They're, I've, they're, I've dedicated them to the Lord. So sorry, mom and dad, I can't use any of my money. I can't use any of my land to help you. You've fallen on hard times. I'd love to help you, but I can't. 
it was called Corban Law. And they said, I would love to help you, but I can't because I've dedicated all of this to the Lord. So the Pharisee had set up these systems. That's what Jesus is poking at. He says, now you're not even able to help your parents because of these traditions that are actually abhorrent to God. So you've put up this whole framework. Jesus calls them the blind leading the blind. They can't recognize the Savior because they're, absor- they're absorbed with saving themselves. Their framework of saving, f- saving themselves is through their rule keeping and their traditions. Perhaps our framework of saving ourselves is just living secular lives or, you know, get a nice place to live, have a couple of toys to make life enjoyable, you know, live a good life. And you don't really have any need for God. If your body happens to be healthy and you can enjoy a long life, then perhaps these are ways we can sort of just be blind and set up a framework where God is irrelevant. The Pharisees can't marvel at Jesus because they're threatened by Jesus because Jesus is a threat to what they really want, which is power. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah and he says, your lips are saying the right things, but your hearts are far from me. This whole framework is just an actual absolute rejection of Jesus' narrative of the kingdom that he is coming, the true representation of the love of God that he's come to uh, demonstrate being God incarnate. And then Jesus says something interesting, I think. He says God will uproot them. If, God, if there's, it's a plant that God didn't plant, God will uproot it. And Jesus says to his disciples, leave them alone. And I find that interesting that Jesus didn't say, these guys are off message. Spend all of your energy running around Pointing at the fact that they're off message. Jesus just says, leave them alone. They're, they've deified their traditions. They're deifying the wrong things. God's going to uproot them. Apparently, the focus that Jesus wants his, his disciples on is to stay on miss, mission. Is to stay on message. Is to very much understand what it is that it has come to proclaim and to say and to do. And uh, I find that informative. We do have some good texts in the New Testament warning the church against false teaching. But those are far and few between. It would seem to me, and I have applied this in a practical sense. Susan and I have applied this practically as it's come to the raising of our three children. Where we've spent infinitely more time investing in the grandness of the gospel narrative. The grandness of Christ's message. Sound doctrine, sound teaching. So that when the wrong message shows up, it's easily recognizable. So that they can go and live their lives in uh, post-secondary education life. and, And in their vocations and in this city uh, with easily able to recognize uh, the things that are off message as opposed to obsessing about all of the isms. So it's interesting words that Jesus says to his disciples, leave them alone to the blind leading the blind. He wants them to stay uh, very focused and not kind of going into the city like a spiritual weed eater feeling you've got to chop everything down all the time. And so uh, he goes on to give this sort of gritty, uh, raw analogy to Peter who asks for an explanation Jesus what are you talking about about all of the things that defiling us coming out of the heart and not eating with the hands and Jesus says you know everything you eat goes out the other end right and it's very graphic and Jesus says it in such a matter of fact way as to, as to show that it is really uh, the heart that is the compass that is orienting our loves and our attractions and uh, our affections uh, to borrow a term from uh, the professor of philosophy at Calvin College, his name is uh, James K. Smith. He uses the term, we're like existential sharks. We're just constantly moving toward our affections, towards our loves. We can't stop. We're just driven towards these things like existential sharks. And so Jesus says that it, it's actually that the heart, it's that existential driving, it's that craving that's constantly leading us towards things. 
Jesus has a low anthropology. The, the Pharisees want to put all the problems outside them. It's about the hand washing. Jesus says the problems are not outside us. They're deep inside us, drawing us uh, towards our greatest affections. Whether that be the evil thoughts, the murder, the adultery, the sexual immorality, the theft, the false witness. He's, this is not an exhaustive list. Jesus rattles off these things to say, look at the ways in which we try and garner power for ourselves. Look at the ways in which we try and control this uncontrollable thing called life. Look at the ways in which we try and garner a sense of meaning, identity, value. Look at the ways in which we sort of try and get an anchor for ourselves to make sense of our place in the world. Look at how we chase after these things. Look at how, how we point at these things like little trophies on the shelf and say, this tells me who I am. This tells me that I'm valuable. This tells me that I'm worthy of love. And now this thing that I found, I need the whole entire world to be like a mirror reflecting back to me the image that I have curated for myself. I need at every turn everyone to validate my sense of worth and identity, whether it be through the education that I have garnered, the letters after my name, my bank account, my shiny toys, my sexuality, fill in the blank. This endless list of things that the heart chases after Jesus goes, this is what's defiling us. To have a framework that does away with the grandness of the creator God. To not trust in me, the one who has come to restore that relationship by grace. To settle the quietness, the rest of the soul. And apart from that framework, you'll just be churning this unquenchable thirst. Jesus is offering through his kingdom and through his gospel message to turn to him. He's offering security in the volatility. He's offering to quench the unquenchable thirst. You know, back in like 2008, I think it was like the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out. I don't know if you remember when it came out because now we're at Pirates of the Caribbean uh, 23, I think. But the first one came out and there was a pirate's curse where the pirates were kind of like these skeletal undead creatures and they were on the ship and they would pull the cork off of the bottle of wine and they would drink the wine and the wine would just pour through their ribcage onto the deck and no amount of wine could satisfy them. And they used to say, we're damned because no amount of wine satisfies us. Nothing can satisfy us. This is the image that Jesus gives when he's talking about the blind leaving the blind and the, and, and the true uh, Need is not hand washing, it's heart washing. The problem is the in, in unquenchable thirst inside us. So let's move on. The, the, the Pharisees, from the Pharisees' response to this Canaanite woman's response to Jesus' narrative. Because now, after there's this rejection, we come to this woman who receives him. See, her response to Jesus' narrative, and she's only heard it. She's 80 kilometers away, by the way, 80 to 100, the ancient maps would suggest. So Jesus travels 80 to 100 kilometers to a region where he doesn't do anything else. He's specifically gone to meet with this woman. And he goes and, and, he, uh, he goes and he meets with this woman. He goes 80 kilometers. She receives him and her life in relation to his liberating, redefining narrative. She also has a framework. She's heard of his work. She's heard of his miracles. She's heard of his message. And then by grace, she allows Jesus to redefine her. Pharisees reject Jesus. She says, no, I will allow myself to be redefined by Jesus. Look at how this all plays out. Initially, the modern reader, as year 2023, we read it. And our takeaway is, wow, Jesus is being really rude to this woman. My friends, Jesus traveled 80 kilometers in the dirt 
to see this woman. He doesn't do anything else in Tyre and Sidon but to see this woman. Jesus loves this woman. Jesus has intentionally gone to have a conversation with this woman. So what is there in the ancient language that as moderns we miss? Let's dive into it. In contrast to the Pharisee that are blind, she sees. And Jesus goes to great lengths. She says to Jesus, this is her opening line. Jesus, she says to him, she's worshiping him. She says, son of David. She's a Canaanite, but she uses a Jewish, kingly, messianic term. She knows who Jesus is. She says, son of David. A designation of the Messiah. Have mercy on me. She has this tenacious tenacious faith because of what she's heard. And the disciples say, hey, listen, send her away. She's crying out after us. You need to know that in the Greek, there's different tenses. Some are really intense. This is not. This is actually passive. So when they say to Jesus, send her away, she's crying after us, which is why when I read it in English, I intentionally read that just very flat. Jesus, send her away, she's crying after us. What they're saying is, why don't you just, like, we've seen you do miracles. Why don't you just give her what she wants? We traveled 80 kilometers to be here because Jesus doesn't say anything to her at first. Because the disciples are like, just give her what she wants and uh, let's keep on going. I mean, healing, you know, healing demon-possessed people, you call that Tuesday, Jesus. Just. <clears throat> but there's something much bigger here. Jesus didn't go 80 kilometers in the dust and the sun for healing. This is all about revealing This is foretelling God's heart for every nation. First to the Jewish nation, but if they reject him, every nation. What has just happened? The Pharisees just rejected him, cold. Now, he's left the Jewish nation, he's in the Canaanite nation, to someone who's going to receive him. This is just a beautiful picture. This is a parable. A parable. This is a living parable that this woman is a part of. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus at this table with this woman, being a living parable, he's amazed at her faith because she not only understands the parable she's in, she joins Jesus in teaching the parable by picking up on the metaphor he's using, and she continues with the metaphor that he's using, and then she acts out the parable that she's in. Listen to how it plays out. The table, the food, the children, the dogs. Jesus isn't being rude. He's not being condescending. He's not insulting the woman. He didn't travel 80 kilometers. He loves this woman like somebody who is gently and carefully stoking these smoldering embers of a fire with a stick so that they burst into flame. Jesus is stoking this woman's faith because he knows she has it. She's gone, he's gone to talk to her about it. And he's using familiar cultural language that she knew all about that reveals not only how she sees him, but how she sees herself in light of him. How do you see yourself in light of him? If you have a secular framework, how do you see yourself in light of him? This is what this is all about. Jesus talks about dogs because, of course, everybody knew it. The Jews called this, the the Canaanites, the Samaritans, the other nations, the Jews called them dogs. The woman knew the language. Jesus then uses a specific term and he calls her a little dog. We would never catch this, but the Jews call them dogs like scavengers. They stay outside, throw rocks at dogs. We hate dogs. Jesus uses the term little dogs. Now, in the ancient world, most people did not have little dogs, but some of the rich people would have little dogs because, let's face it, you don't have, you're not going to feed an animal before you feed your own children. 
And if you're trying to survive in the ancient world, you're not going to be giving food to an animal that your children can be having. I know that as a modern, this is like absolutely abhorrent because we talk about our animals like they're our children. And I'm treading softly, but I'm sticking with the text, friends. So if you love your pooches, that's great. I grew up with lots of dogs. I'm not anti-dog. I'm just over dogs. That's all. I like just my space is my thing and nobody sniffs me and touches me. It's fine. Your dogs are beautiful. They're great. But listen, what's going on? Back to the... Come on, moderns, come with me to the ancient world. Here we go. The little dogs were in the household. The little dogs would be given scraps after the children. So Jesus says, uses this term, little dog. He says, but I can't give the little dogs the food that's for the children. And this woman does not get offended. She does not get upset. She knows exactly what is going on. She knows exactly who she is. It's like she says, Jesus, I understand your ministry is to Israel. It's like she's saying, I know they have a special place in God's redemptive plan. Everybody knows that. But I also know that your ministry extends beyond the Jewish people, and I want to be a part of that extended blessing. That's why the first words out of her mouth are, yes, Lord. He says, I can't give the food to little dogs. She's like, yes, I know this parable. I know who I am in this parable. I know who I am in relation to you. It's amazing. I'm not asking for the portion that belongs to the children. I just want the crumbs that they don't want. And in this passage, she is asking for the crumbs that the religious leaders clearly just said that they don't want. The Pharisees are like angry toddlers, throwing food, throwing stuff from their high chairs, whining and crying and throwing stuff from their high chairs. And she's like, I will take the amazing grace. I've heard of you. I know who you are. And I know who I am in relation to you. This is glorious. Her faith was great. He says, woman, your, your faith is great. Jesus is blown away by it. He's only been blown away by faith twice. Once, this Canaanite woman. And another time, a Roman centurion. He's blown away. Jesus says, it's great. Well, it's great, of course, because it's unlikely. It's great, of course, because she worshipped and she didn't even have an answer from him yet. It's great because it's insightful. Do you and I see ourselves in Jesus' narrative? Can we see ourselves in Jesus' narrative? Who are you in relation to Jesus' great narrative? Which leads to the final thing as I close. Our call to respond to Jesus' narrative. Will we live from our small temporary, cultural, or personal narratives. If you're here, again, and I'm, 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 I know I'm, if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, <clears throat> I know some of the things I'm saying are, are provocative, but I just want to, I, gen, I gently, I, I just want to provoke one more thing. As moderns, we like the idea that we are self-made, that we like the idea that we, that, that who I am as a person, I conjure from myself and nobody tells me. It's sort of the, we've grown up with the Disneyfication of identity, right? Whatever's inside me has just got to come out and that's who I am. That either the culture, the, the, the culture doesn't tell me who I am, I'm telling me who I am. But the culture has always told us who we are. The culture is still telling you who you are. In this grand narrative that we have about uh, speaking our own truths, our culture very much has rules what those truths are. And these are the ways in which you align in this particular context, in this particular juncture, in this particular city, culture, region, 
continent. This, these are the rules. The culture has always operated this way. How do we respond to Jesus' narrative? Who are we in relation to, to him? Can we be like this Canaanite woman and find true security, true sense of identity as the children of God being reconnected to our glorious creator through the grace of Jesus Christ, being swept up into the grandness of his narrative? You see, his narrative is that this world of ours, which is beautiful but also broken, will be restored. His narrative is that death is not the end, and that changes the way we go to work on Monday. Because we therefore relate to campus life, the office, our neighbors, our vocations, our recreation. It changes the way in which we just engage with people as the children of God because we very much want to live into a congruence with reality. And if the reality is God's reality, which is that after death there is resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus Christ means we get one, then that means that the way in which we approach our relationships and vocations is with one of congruence, a desire for his wisdom, his laws, and his ways to govern our hearts and our lives. So that like the Canaanite woman, we're able to bend our knee and say, Yes, Lord, I know who I am in relation to you. And I want to live into congruence of my true identity, which is to be your child. To borrow some from C.S. Lewis, he said it this way, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun. Not only do I see it, but by, everything, but by it, I see everything else. It's the lens through which we approach our life. That all human life on planet Earth is on a trajectory. And God, in a shocking contradiction of what we deserve, brings us into a trajectory of renewal. Jesus Christ, his message, his kingdom was that he came to intercept our trajectory, which is the inevitable highway to the cemetery. He came to intercept that as the end of the human story. So that there would be a glorious revisiting of what God intended in the beginning. That with the resurrection of Jesus Christ means the resurrection of all things, which means that you and I use our intellect, our personalities, our gifts, our abilities, and our vocations, not just until the day we die, but onward and into eternity as we cultivate this beautiful and glorious world in a way that gives glory to the Creator. Can you imagine a planet where everybody with their scientific or their political or their artistic gifts, their mechanical gifts, their hospitality gifts, can you imagine a world in which we used the vastness of our resources to love our neighbor, only to love our neighbor? You can't imagine it. Of course we can't imagine it. You're like, you're talking about Wakanda. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, his narrative, the renewal of all things. This is why we bend our knee to the wisdom and the law of God and live to the obedience of Christ and put off, put off our sin and put on the glorious uh, riches of our Savior. That's why when the wisdom of the law of God, when it comes to the ways in which we use our money, the way we relate to the poor, the way we relate to our sexuality, we will bend our knee on all fronts to say, though this is incongruent, with this culture and this world in which I live, or even the desires of my own heart, I will align with your narrative because I see myself in relation to who you are, Jesus. That this world and this city that we live in, this is a temporary shadow of what is to come. That the beauty and the wonderful things that you find in humanity, 
These are a shadow of the things that will be restored to fullness, and all the sorrows will be eradicated forever. This is Jesus' narrative. So may we now, like this Canaanite woman, go in glorious joy, having received from Christ's grace in his narrative, knowing that no matter who we are, no matter what we have done, we're not dogs under the table. We've been welcomed by our brother Jesus to have a seat at the table. And now, my friends, may we come and rejoice and eat and drink at the Lord's table. Amen. Let's pray.